Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest. This may be his fifth time, but there's a reason for that. Dennis Noble. He's part of the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics at University of Oxford. Uh, He's been involved in science longer than I've been alive. He's had a lot of uh, amazing discoveries, first about the heart and the electrical workings of the heart, put out countless papers. He's into uh, physiology and uh, evolutionary biology, and we're going to talk today about uh, his ideas and thoughts on cancer, because I've noticed whenever I introduce and I interview Dennis, he always has uh, novel ideas and thoughts that I've never thought of. So I think he'll be a great contributor, and Dennis, thanks for coming back. A great pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, excellent. You know, I know, again, cancer may not be your primary focus, but I'm sure you have a lot of good things to say about it. What, just before we start, what are your thoughts on cancer? Um, have you thought about it for a while or has it kind of been, you know, a side project for you? But, you know, what, what are your thoughts about it? Oh, very much a center project at the moment. I'm in the middle of editing a special issue of the journal Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology entirely devoted to articles, some of them very powerful articles indeed, arising from the meeting in Boston last October on cancer and evolution. Now, that may sound extremely odd. What on earth relationship can there be between the evolution of species to lead to you and me having formed, as it were, from other organisms by the evolutionary process, what conceivable relationship can there be between all of that, which is, of course, Charles Darwin, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, and all the great people who contributed in the early stages to evolutionary biology, and one of the biggest killers of today, that is cancer. And I asked exactly that question myself, When I was first asked, probably a few months before the October meeting, would I be happy to contribute to it? And I replied saying, well, I'll tell you the truth, you know, I don't know anything about cancer. Now, they replied, the organisers, saying very simply, you wrote the book, Dance to the Tune of Life. You think it's got nothing to do with cancer. We think it does. Think again. And I now know what they had in mind. They had in mind this, that with late-stage cancer, we are not succeeding very well at all. Once you're at stages three and four, those are the stages where everything is metastasizing, that means growing out into the rest of the body in an uncontrolled way, our tools are very crude. We either zap people with radiotherapy 
or we zap them with chemotherapy. In both cases, of course, we're doing a lot of damage to the tissues themselves, deliberately, because the idea, of course, is that if you can kill the cancer, at least you save the patient. And now I come to the extraordinarily interesting fact about the relationship between the evolutionary process and the evolution of species and that problem with late-stage cancer. What we are doing is what I and many other people have been saying for at least a decade or two, which is that if you zap things in the body with big challenges like radiotherapy or chemotherapy, you cause them to mutate. Mm. You actually provoke the mutations in the cancerous tissue. Because what is it? It's a growing organism inside another organism. It's taking over. And that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, it, yeah that's the it, problem. So if I picture a uh, one cancer cell sitting there, I picture that versus 100 or 1,000 or a million or a billion at what point do you believe that, uh, quote-unquote, enough cancer cells will now start to act as one? Do you think that they act as one even at the point where there's two cells? Oh, or do you they, think they're kind of rogue for a while? Yes. No, that's a very good question, Rich. As always, they communicate. And we now know how they communicate. Down the corridor in my uh, department, there's a team that works on what are called exosomes. We've talked about this in previous discussions I've had with you. But let me just briefly say why this is relevant. Cancer cells also put out exosomes. And what those exosomes have, these are little packets, very tiny indeed, much smaller than a cell, of some of the control chemicals that determine that this is a heart cell, this is a kidney cell, this is a bone cell, and so on, even though they've got all the same genome. And what those little packets of information, their information about the regulatory state in the cells from which they come, what they do is to communicate to other cells. And so the cancer cells communicate to each other. They also communicate to the normal cells and even uh, give them prompts to possibly becoming cancerous. That's controversial. We don't know whether that happened, but we do know that the exosomes contribute to the metastatic pathway that leads to the cancer cells managing to metastasize, that is, grow out into the rest of the body vastly quicker than they would otherwise do. I've become an enthusiast, Rich, from saying just a few months ago, I know nothing about all of this, (laughs) to suddenly discovering the very issue that I've been dealing with in the last few years, which is what is wrong with the standard theory of biology, turns out to be one of the keys to working out what we should do about our failure to deal with cancer. So so people should, doctors should consider cancer as a separate organism with its own homeostatic drive, its own, you know, cellular intelligence. They should regard it that way, yes? Yes, I think it's a good way to regard it because it explains why we're so ineffective in late stage cancer. I'll come to the early stage in a moment. But late stage is, it is a bit like an organism growing within the organism, if I can put it that way. So a new species almost growing within the organism itself. And it's extremely difficult to control because once you've allowed the spread to occur, as we all know, the the success rate in uh, in terms of do people live for five 
years, three years, one year, or, or just a few weeks after the very invasive techniques we use to try to control late-stage cancer, very few make it. There's been no improvement in the statistics for one-year and five-year survival rates from late-stage cancer over the last 30 years. And we've spent billions trying to find the answer. And I think we've been looking in the wrong place. This may be a really cringy example, but I was thinking about um, you know, pregnancy for a moment. It, is there anything in the medical literature where a pregnancy actually turns into a cancer or a tumor where, you know, I guess it would be a horribly sick thing, but the baby, instead of being viable, actually turns into uh, some kind of a monster or, uh, you know, like a cancer inside the woman's body. Yes, actually, very occasionally you do get monsters. That's what we sometimes call them. I don't know whether we should. Um, Yes, seriously, first of all, very many of such monsters, you would call them, would never survive. So they abort quite quickly. But you've raised a lovely question, actually, which is this. How can an egg receive a totally different DNA sequence, genome, from a sperm and manage? Because there's, a going, there's going to be a kind of competition within that fused cell once the sperm has got inside. So what does the egg do? It has a mechanism for keeping the sperm DNA away from the ova, that is the egg cell DNA, for as long as it takes for the cell to adjust. And that may be after two or three reproductions, in fact. So there are mechanisms that egg cells have for preventing themselves from being as it were, discombobulation, which I think means being completely upset, everything topsy-turvy, thrown up uh, all over the place. I think the egg cells, and there are lovely publications on this, simply wait until they can find the way to integrate the over-DNA and the uh, sperm DNA. So it's a big issue with the early-stage development. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Um, before we get to full development of the embryo. Now, of course, what we know will happen is that in many cases, when that process of integration goes wrong, then it just won't survive. You, you won't. Well, I suppose if it's a late stage abortion, you know about it and we call it an abortion. But if it's an early stage one, it means the mother concerned doesn't even know that they've conceived. Well, I know it's weird, but the reason I'm bringing it up is that and this is just my speculation. A sperm is similar in, in my mind to an extracellular vesicle, which is also okay. similar to a virus because they all contain genetic material. They all have some kind of outer membrane or coating. They're all able to enter into cells. They're all able to cause changes, sometimes radical changes in, 
at least gene expression, if not genes themselves. And in the case of viruses and sperm, they're actually facilitating creation of a new organism in some cases, exactly. you know. So that's that's why the, the idea came up. I don't know if you see any parallels between those three entities. I, you know, I totally agree with you. I think the parallels are very, very strong. And, you know, one of the biggest uh, stimuli to speciation, I'm now just talking about ordinary evolution for a moment, not just cancer, is the fusion of one organism with another. Hybridization is actually one of the best ways in which evolution knows how to create new species. It doesn't, generally speaking, so far as we can see, generate new species, it generates new varieties from the standard story, which is an accumulation of little mutations, slowly accumulating and eventually producing a new kind of organism. The biggest stimulus we know to and, and plant breeders and dog breeders and so on all know this. The biggest stimulus to producing a new variety and possibly a new species is hybridization, bringing two genomes together. So in a sense, therefore, all babies are hybrids. Uh, in a sense, mm. in a very yep. real sense, it is exactly the same problem. How do you fuse together two genomes that may not actually easily fuse together? And with uh, you mentioned earlier that cancer cells will use extracellular vesicles to signal to, I guess, somatic cells and to metastases. Yes. Um, has anyone, is there a, um, you know, like a master-slave or parent-child relationship between a primary tumor and the metastases? Like, can anyone tell in a network of tumors who's running the show, or is it kind of a decentralized communication between all of them? Well, that's that's also a very good question. I actually think that control is decentralized anyway in organisms. I'm, as you probably know, I'm deeply opposed to the idea that the genome controls everything as a kind of central controller. And indeed, I'm uh, opposed to the idea that there's a controlling cell in organisms. I think we are all communities of cells that have adapted to their existence together and know how to communicate to form a kind of intelligence, which is the intelligence of the whole organism. So I don't see it in terms of any particular um, group of cells telling the rest what to do. And if indeed what we find with late stage metastasis, which is that there is a radiation of cell types, there's rapid mutation. It's what we call hypermutation. Rapid mutation is what that word means. And what we do when we zap people with radiotherapy and chemotherapy is we risk that process of forming even new genetic mutations that will be even more resistant to the treatment. And that's, of course, why quite frequently and unfortunately... If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The, once you've got to the metastatic stage, even if you can with surgery, radiotherapy or chemotherapy, succeed initially in making the tumor grow smaller or even apparently disappear, what you often find is it comes back again two or three years later when presumably a small minority of cells were resistant because of their mutations and because of the hypermutation to the treatment will in the end take over. But that reinforces my point that it isn't a central controller. 
any of them might take over being, as it were, the cancer. It won't necessarily be the same, exactly the same, genetically the same cancer that came back from the one that was there initially. Yeah, has anyone tried to map all the observed mutations and correlate them with what type of resistance or what type of ability the cells now have? I would think we could learn a lot from, unfortunately, all the poor people that have had chemo over the decades. And again, if those were mapped, those abilities were mapped mm-hmm. to you know what it does, it would be a huge, huge insight. Yes, those have been mapped. There will be a lovely contribution from Jeffrey Townsend at uh, Yale University to the special issue of Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology that I'm helping to edit, which shows that those who map these kinds of radiations have done this and in great detail. So, yes, that's a good way forward. What you can do with that information after you've got it is less clear. The problem, as I see it, is that we really have to, and here I come to the more positive side of what I'm saying, because so far, rather critical of how we've managed cancer. Clearly, we have to identify the cancerous development before the third, fourth stages before the the rampant metastasis, the rampant Mm. spreading. Now, there's a very interesting study that's just come out from University College London. happens to be my old alma mater, where I studied many years ago. That isn't the reason I, I point to it. What they've done is very interesting. They've scanned the lungs of a large number of people, not necessarily coming in for lung treatment or anything like that, but who are patients but and may not in any way have any suspicion they might or might not have lung cancer. Nevertheless, they've done the scanning and they've done it on a large scale. And what that trial has shown is you can pick up lung cancer early. Mm. Now, of course, this is not waiting for somebody to say, I'm sorry, I've got a pain in my chest, or sorry, I can't breathe efficiently. It's These are people who otherwise have no idea that they've got cancer. What that is showing is that if we could more routinely scan people at an earlier stage, as people do with breast cancer already, for example, and, and then surgery can be very effective. So that could be one way forward. That is, scan early where scanning can help. And for lung cancer, it can because you can spot these small uh, tumors early enough because the otherwise you know, the scan of the of the chest is full of empty space it's how we breathe right. after all so it's not too difficult to find uh, soft tissue which of course is cancerous tissue uh, growing inside a normal organism in the case of the lung now the question is how could one apply that to other cancers we couldn't do that with pancreatic cancer liver cancer two of the most rampant and difficult ones to control what we'd have to do there is to find the early markers in for example a blood test and that's again where the exosomes come in and this you know i've learned most of this from uh, the cancer and evolution meeting last last october in boston so I'm just relating to you what I learned in that meeting. But one of them could be that if you can detect those cancer signals in the exosomes, 
those will appear everywhere in the body. You can even find exosomes in the blood. So it's conceivable that a simple blood test, if it can separate the exosomes out into different categories, one might be able to use a simple blood test to detect very early stage cancer at a stage where all it's doing is putting out those signals to the rest of the body. Here I am. I'm a cancer cell. Why don't you join me? Why don't you let me come through? So I think it's conceivable that if we put the resources into looking for those early markers, we might do very well. And the person who has been campaigning for this is a very interesting professor, an oncologist at, now this is, I think, Columbia University. That's right, it's Columbia in New York. The professor is Azra Raza. And mm, I, she's fantastic on this. I mean, she mm. will wax eloquent on this point, for goodness sake. She's author of the book, The First Cell, which I think is a, a brilliant book. And what mm. she's saying is, let's, for goodness sake, put the resources into these methods, which we know might give us the earlier clues well before the third and fourth stage develop. Then we may have great success. How do you imagine that... Uh cancer first starts i mean you know some people say oh it's a single cell that that all magically mutates but you know how would you uh how do you think it starts what do you think is the real deal well i i don't know but what i can tell you is that from my knowledge of the physiology of the body i think cancerous cells are developing all the time why don't we find them why don't we experience them i think it's because our immune systems pick them up so quickly that we never know. Now, why do I think that? The natural state of cells is to reproduce. So actually, in one sense, cancer cells are doing what comes naturally to cells. You see, it's it's quite unnatural. If you think of the microbes, the amoebae, the viruses, well, they're not really a microbe, they're just dependent on other cells. But anyway, the bacteria, certainly, and all the various microbial organisms that exist, the yeasts and so on, um, what they do is to reproduce as much as they can. There's no limit to what they can do other than the physical limit of where they're growing and the physical limit of the nutrition that is available to. So they, they just multiply in an exponential way very quickly. Now, that's the natural state of all single cell organisms. They all do that. So if you think about it, in our bodies and in the bodies of all multicellular organisms, we are, the cells are being constrained presumably by communication between them. And we know roughly how that may work, because even a colony of bacteria will do that. If you get a film of bacteria growing on a solution which is feeding, so you get a bacterial film developing and spreading out as they they, um, reproduce very rapidly. What happens in those films is extraordinarily interesting. There's a mechanism by which the cells at the center who may have a problem with getting nutrition because they're not at the edge where all the nutrients are, will send signals to the periphery and say, don't reproduce yet because we're not ready yet. We need to eat more. Now, that's very interesting. And we know how that works, actually. It's a potassium wave that spreads from the center 
of the cells that are releasing potassium because they're hungry and they send that potassium wave it's literally a wave each wave of potassium triggers a release of potassium from the next cell and so on and so on and what it does is to send a signal to the rest of the colony to say please stop reproducing so what you find is they Mm. reproduce in a kind of cycle they're first of all reproducing rapidly and then the center says hey wait a minute we're hungry hold it so they stop reproducing and and so it goes on oscillating away now that's just a community of bacterial cells but they've got that mechanism for communicating amongst themselves so that they act as a a coherent film the center of the film doesn't die otherwise it would so i think we can see the roots of this distributed because it's not a central controller that's doing this although I talked about the centre of the cells and the periphery of the cells, they're talking to each other. Now, we do that all the time in, in, in our cells. Our tissues have mechanisms for telling um, the cells within the tissue, stop growing because we're too big already. So I think one way of looking at cancer is actually it's a more normal state of single cell life than the cells in our bodies normally. It's a more normal state outside a multicellular body. It's what cells experience, the freedom they had before they, as it were, agreed to become locked up in multicellular organisms. So my feeling about the cancer cells is that, first of all, they're probably developing all the time. Most of the time, we never encounter them because they're suppressed by our immune system. It's very effective at detecting cells that are uh, misbehaving, if you like. They get told to die. Literally, there is a process. You tell the cell to die, and it proceeds to do so. And it makes its nutrients available to the rest of the organism. Now, I, I think that's the process that gives us the key here. It isn't so much that there is just one cell that goes cancerous. I think most cells have the potential to be, as it were, getting fed up, if I can give them a description that is intentional. Of course, they don't have this intention. But they've, as it were, become fed up of cooperating in a whole organism. And so they they start dividing again. Normally, our immune system will tell that cell, stop, you die. And it it must be when our immune systems are not capable of dealing with the cancerous development that then you get a full-blown cancer. Well, what do you what do you think is the order of appearance of abilities when cancer starts? Do you think it's the you know grow and and not hear the signal to die? Do you think it's the you know proliferate at will? Is it you know evade the immune system? Like, what do you think happens first and next and next in order of ability? I don't know is the answer to that. Um, And again, we come back to how little we know about the early stages of cancer. That's why I fully support Azraza's call for redirecting resources towards the early stage, towards the early stage markers that might give us a better chance before we get to the stage where it's almost impossible to control. So the honest answer is I don't know. I certainly have ideas that come from what I've been saying in this discussion, because if you go back to the point I was making, that cancers must be in the sense of being mutations in cells that could lead them to reproduce rapidly, um, those, those must be arising all the time, because as I said earlier, 
that's the natural state of cells in the free state, not being part of a multicellular body. I think it's a battle between the immune system and the tendency of the body to produce cancerous cells. Now, that would explain one thing which is fairly evident. With notable exceptions, most cancers arrive late in life. And that's when your immune system is getting less effect. I can't prove what I'm saying, but as a physiologist, it makes sense to me that if the immune system is in any way weakened, then you have the opportunity for latent cancerous developments to then become real cancers rather than being latent. Do you think that within a given organ or tissue, there's a, um, again, there are majority and minority voices? You know, the, if we have a, a very small tumor, let's say in a liver, the normal somatic cells, I guess, would have, you know, by far the majority voice as to yes, what's going on and relationship with the body. But, you know, as a tumor grows, as tumor burden grows, do you think it takes over at some point? And what would you see in a person where the tumor is the majority voice, let's say, in the functioning yes, of an organ? The, that's right. It becomes the tipping point, doesn't it, in this battle? Yes, I think that's right. And we can very easily envisage a tipping point because if you have a a mechanism for getting rid of cancerous cells, which is fighting all the time, because my idea would be that, not just my idea, many others have had the same idea, that cancerous development is occurring all the time, then it's a battle to keep that population of rebel cells, if you like, so small that they get suppressed by the rest of the tissue. Now, that's a very good way to look at it because there is actually, and again, this is one of the articles that will be in the issue of Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology um, coming out sometime later this year. Um, One of the theories is called the tissue organization field theory. This is a, a theory uh, championed by Carlos Sonnenschein and Anna Soto at Tufts University in the USA. They also work quite a lot in Paris. Now, their idea is very simply exactly that, that tissues themselves tell the cancerous developments within them what they can and cannot do. Now, that's testable and has been tested. In some cases, you can show that if you transplant a tumour from where it is occurring into normal tissue, the normal tissue can succeed in suppressing the the tumour. That's a key development that, of course, is is part of what the Sonnenschein and Soto theory, the tissue organisation field theory of cancer, gets validated by demonstrating that kind of of effect. So where does this lead us? Again, there's another aspect, the battle between the normal and the abnormal and how to favour one over the other. Well, one, of course, is to just simply boost your immune system. Any treatment and any effective process that boosts your immune system will help that. This is incidentally another reason why Generally speaking, we should have the lifestyle that tends to improve our immune systems. Eat well, exercise well, and so on. These, of course, are standard recommendations by doctors to their patients, but they're absolutely right. The more you can keep your immune system in good health, the better chance I think you have on this particular view of cancer of suppressing the very early stages. So that's certainly one 
recommendation that, that people can, can give, and indeed already do, of course, because it's what uh, general practitioners will tell their patients all the time. Keep, keep your diet good, keep your exercising good. But does it lead to any specific therapies? I don't know yet. The, the big thing that came out from the Cancer and Evolution meeting last October is that we really don't know enough about the early stage development. That's where the resources, in my view, should now go. What about, you know, for autopsies that are being conducted on, you know, older individuals? Why not ask if, um, you know, you could take samples, let's say, of their lung tissue or other organs and look for like micro cancers? And perhaps if you got enough of that information, then you'd be able to get a better idea of what, you know, early stage cancers look like. And it would be kind of a, a free ride because the person's gone anyway. And, you know, similar to an organ donation, they could donate a, a histological donation in a way. You know? Actually, well, actually that's being done. Azaraza has a huge tissue bank hmm. in, in Columbia University. She's developed it over, I think, about 20 years or so. Uh, that's exactly what she's doing. She's accumulating the tissue from very many of the autopsies of her, her uh, presumably her patients. I, I don't know. The but, but, the, but those are patients that have had cancer. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about people that, uh, you know, there's been no sign that they've had it. They've died of other causes, but oh, I perhaps see. they'd have true microtumor. Oh, my goodness. I've never, I hadn't thought of that. We should put that to Ezra and ask her. Has she did, <laughs> does she take okay. tissue? From, yes, I don't know. To be honest, I know she has this tissue bank, which is huge. Whether she's done it, in patients that haven't actually died of cancer, I don't know. You have to ask her. Okay. Yeah, it was just an idea. So Good to get her on the program if you think that would be a good idea. Yeah, I'll talk to her again. I've, I've had her once before. I'll, I'll have her back. Right. Good idea. Yes. Well, that's a very good question to put to her because I, she would know, first of mm. all, whether she's been doing it anyway and how feasible is that? How good is autopsy? to detect cancers. Well, of course, if they are clear and and obvious, uh, you will. But I think you're probably imagining more microscopic examination to try and find very early stage cancer and see what right. we could learn from that. Yes, that's a question for people like Azra who do the tissue sampling. I really don't know whether they, either whether they've done that or what it shows. Okay. Do you, do you know anyone that's um, looked at a tumor three-dimensionally and mapped out, you know, all the genetic changes, all the epigenetic changes, I mean, all the, you know, everything about the cells in, a, again, a 3D spatial view of a tumor so you could see how, how the abilities are distributed, how the, the heterogeneity is distributed? I'm pretty certain there will be publications in this special issue that treat that. It could even be that Jeffrey Townsend's work at Yale may have exactly that kind of detail. I can't exactly remember. He's certainly been following with genomic information, the radiation of cancers. My guess is he's probably looked at this three-dimensionally, but I don't recall whether that was done. But now your idea would be that in some sense, the outermost reaches would be interestingly different from the ones at the center of the radiation, as it were. And I think right. you're right. That must be so. And um, 
I think his data would include that kind of information, but I haven't, uh, I'm not personally responsible for refereeing his paper, so I haven't read it in detail. Um, but he'd be the kind of person who would be able to answer that question. Yeah, because I just wondered, again, spatially in a 3D way, what are the, you know, what does the heterogeneity look like? And if you also looked at metastases, what does their structure look like, you know, in return? And can you also tell from a metastasis which primary it came from? Like, can can you see the, the order of progeny, you know, if oh, you have a given cancer cell? Yes, you certainly can see the the history, as it were, of the radiation, yes. So you can, as it were, trace back to what linked to what. It's like a tree of life. Yes, I mean, what was shown at the October meeting was precisely such a tree of life, a radiation of cancerous forms. Yes, I can certainly answer that question, and you you certainly see that kind of radiation. It's almost like Darwin's notebook diagram when he was describing the radiation of the uh, of the Galapagos finches uh, <laughs> in his eighteen twenty seven notebook. Um, you know, it is just a little diagram of a tree, and certainly that's been done. And the genomics is sufficiently accurate to be able to produce such a tree. Now, how it correlates with the actual three-dimensional structure of the physical radiation, I don't remember. Even without radiation or with, you know, I guess before and after, you know, I just wonder what the distribution looks like. What kind of a structure are these cells trying to make? You know, it looks like it's a, it's not as good of a structure or a viable one as normal cells, but they're probably trying to make some kind of structure. You know, they, they, they use angiogenesis to bring nutrients, etc. You know? Indeed, and there are two things that are worth noting on that, on the structure. First of all, the exosomes are involved in, as it were, preparing the way, because they actually place what you might call sticky proteins on the path. Uh, it, it's extraordinary. I, this is one of the things I learned at a, a meeting on exosomes in my own department about a year and a half ago. It's what led me to suggest that the Cancer and Evolution Symposium should invite some of those who were observing this, as it were, laying of a pathway of sticky proteins for a metastatic process to occur. So that's one sense in which there is a structure, but there's another sense in which there is a structuring, and that's the angiogenesis side of all of this. That's a, a big technical word, and all it means is get the blood supply in, because clearly if a cancerous tissue develops without blood supply, it will die. So you've got to be within, I've forgotten exactly what it is, certainly a few hundreds of microns quite close to circulating fluid to be alive indefinitely. So cancerous tissues have to promote this process of the circulation growing into them. That led, incidentally, to a very interesting idea on how to control cancerous development, somehow suppress the angiogenesis, that is, the building up of the new circulation. The trouble with that, of course, is that most of the techniques we know for suppressing angiogenesis will unfortunately not be very good for the rest of the organism that relies on angiogenesis continuing all the time. So, yes, they certainly do, as it were, develop their own structure. They have to partly because they've got to maintain 
the circulation and therefore provoke the circulation to invade the cancerous tissue, but also because the exosomes seem to be capable of laying out a pathway for the metastatic development to occur. In thinking about the, the microenvironment of cancer, you know, the primary tumor, I guess, would have it easier because it's in, you know, liver cells that turn cancerous are in the liver. So I would think that as soon as these cells turn cancerous, um, they'll start to attract a different microbiome that would have different metabolites that it trades with those cells because their needs are different. But what about a metastasis? Now it's in a foreign environment. You know, you have a liver cell that's cancerous in the, the pancreas. So now it's in a really unusual environment that's very alien to it. I would think that metastases would be more likely picked up by the immune system because, again, there's such a, a stronger signal that they're so different and that they would have to adapt a lot more strongly and differently because they're in this alien microenvironment. Well, they're certainly in an alien microenvironment and the immune system will certainly be trying to uh, attack them. But again, I see that as a kind of battle. They will, under stress, under attack by the immune system, they will hypermutate. That's what we know about organisms generally. Whenever they're put under nutritional, radiational, or any other kind of stress, they will hypermutate. And the mechanism of that is very straightforward. Errors in the DNA occur all the time. Most of the time, cells control those errors. All you've got to do to hypermutate, to mutate rapidly, is just to, as it were, tone down that error-correcting process. So it's very easy for cells to proceed to mutate rapidly. So now I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> oh, this is the unusual well, environment issue, isn't it? That's right. It? Yeah, like, yeah, if you compare the microenvironment of a primary yeah. versus a metastasis, what would you observe? We're back to the question of the early stage, aren't we? Because the primary event before metastasis is what we know so little about. This, again, is Azraraz's first cell hypothesis. So one answer is that we don't have a proper comparison. And I think that probably is true because it's difficult, isn't it? You, If you've only got, say, oh, I don't know what it might be, just a, a group of five cells as a latent cancer, how on earth could you ever pick those up? Um, in uh, your microscopic techniques. You'd have to be not just sampling, as it were, in a, uh, what's the word I want, in a chancy way in a tissue. You'd have to be making many samples to get hold of a, a bit that happens to include um, a, um, a development that is latent cancer. So I'm not sure how this kind of research could be done, certainly not on on living human beings. You could take multiple samples from an animal and hope to get some information by microscopic examination. But again, I'm not totally sure what you'd be looking for. That's partly why I think the resources to come back to that issue really should be uh, switched to some degree towards the processes that we can investigate that could enable us to understand the early stages much better than we do. I don't think we understand them well enough. I, I get this idea because I, I spoke to, I've referred to her many times, uh, Florencia McAllister. She's studying pancreatic tumors, and she has noted in, in literature that uh, 
the pancreatic tumors have a slightly different localized microbiome than the rest of the healthy pancreas. I see. So, so I would think that um, you know when cells turn cancerous, they start attracting a different microbiome slightly, and then becomes more and more different. And you know that contributes obviously to their health and their ability. But um, yes, you know different metabolites are betrayed, the different respiration, you know glyc- yeah. um, glycolysis instead of oxphosphate. So I would think the signaling from cancer cells will become more and more different you know, in an organ as it grows. And uh, I wonder what can be picked up to see early on what's happening. Yes, no, that's an interesting idea. I always learn something from having uh, a go in one of your podcasts. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, just trying to ask questions. So, yeah. So you seem to be well connected with a lot of researchers that are working on different things. What what else is exciting that's coming that you're aware of in terms of research about cancer early stage? Well, I think actually we've largely dealt with what I picked up at the, uh, and in interaction with uh, the Cancer and Evolution group, because there's now a formal group that is, is even forming itself, uh, as it were, officially as one of the branches of the American Association for Cancer Research. So I think the best advice is watch this space because its mission as a group will be to see how far we can get with encouraging research into the early stages that could enable a breakthrough in understanding and treating cancer. So I think my best answer to you, Rich, is watch this space. I think it's going to be very interesting. Mm. And I was sufficiently enthused both by the meeting in Boston. Of course, it was held by Zoom, but it was actually held from Boston. I was sufficiently enthused by that meeting to be uh, committed myself to helping the process through the group that is now formed um, to see whether any of the insights that I can give them from evolutionary biology, from systems biology, uh, could help. And I've been welcomed with open arms by the, particularly the oncologists in the in the group who have been fascinated by the kind of view that I bring to it, which is, it's it's a bit unusual because it's not gene-centric, you see. Most of the work, I have to say this, on cancer is extremely gene-centric. The idea is that there are mutations, they accumulate enough to produce a cancerous tissue. I think it may just be the other way around. Yes, there will be mutations that get it going, but it may well be the hypermutation that occurs when the immune system itself is trying to attack the cancer cells and the way in which our own treatments, particularly the severe treatments like um, chemotherapy and and radiotherapy, provoke uh, the cells to hypermutate even more. So I think my best advice, Rich, is watch this space. I I think this group is going somewhere. And it may be that in a year or two, it may come up with some really good ideas on how research into the early stages could be sufficiently fruitful to start having an impact on the clinical treatment of cancer. Yeah, just a, a couple more questions. Um, sure. Has anyone tried to take a healthy mouse and just inject it with exosomes from a mouse that has cancer and see if the mouse gets cancer? Good question, and I don't know. Who might would be the, the the people who are contributing the article on exosomes to the, the journal issue that I'm 
helping to edit, and that is Scott Bonner at uh, Oxford and Edward Wilms in La Trobe University in Australia. They, they are the two who are working on this. What I do know is that one of the areas they work on is interestingly the uh, cancer development that occurs in the Tasmanian devils. Mm. Now, this is the only case, so far as I'm aware, where cancers can actually be communicated from one organism to another. The Tasmanian devils, really? when, when they bite each other, they, they acquire the cancer. Now, mm. that you can understand why people interested in exosomes would be interested in that kind of question. But I, I think yeah. if you wanted to find out more about that kind of question and the question generally of the role of exosomes, Edward Wilms uh, would be a very good person to interview. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Last question about a viral infection or viral causes of cancer. Is that well understood? Or, you know, what, what is the mechanism by which a virus would cause someone to have a cancer? I suppose, and this is just me uh, thinking through my biological knowledge, one mechanism would be if that viral DNA, if it's a DNA virus, of course, if that gets incorporated into the genome in a way that interferes with the cell cycle, then it could provoke multiple reproduction, that is, uncontrolled reproduction. So one mechanism would be for the virus to, in some way, disrupt the cell cycle, which is the, the cycle which, after all, receives the signals from the rest of the tissue to prevent it from reproducing too rapidly. So that's how tissues, as it were, keep control over the cells that form them. So there's one possibility. So I, I thought I had a second one, but I can't remember what it was now. Um, this is the question of viruses. Yes, okay. Now, with RNA viruses, it's rather different because they, after all, RNA doesn't get... Well, no, I'm, I'm wrong. It can be incorporated into DNA, actually. There is, of course as was discovered way back in 1970. There are transcriptases that can reverse transcribe RNAs into DNA. But to be honest, I don't know whether RNA viruses have been shown to do that in such a way that that interferes with the DNA that is involved in the cell cycle. But that's where you need to look. So I can point the way. I, I think, incidentally, that's my role in this kind of discussion, which is that I bring a, a knowledge of biology generally to these discussions. And that's what people have valued in what I've been able to contribute to the cancer and evolution group. So my idea would simply be that look to see whether RNA viruses could be incorporated in such a way that they interfere with the cell cycle. That has to be the key because that's what controls the speed with which cells reproduce. Well, very good. Well, Dennis, like I said, it's always great to have you. You know, it's also to your voice. You have that, you know, nice, uh, nice speaking voice where anything you talk about is interesting to hear. So well, but thank, thank you for coming. It's very good to appear again on your broadcast. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.